God's Word and turn with me again to the book of Numbers. Today, Numbers chapter 25. We'll be reading all 18 verses of this chapter. And for those of you who may be new to Redeemer uh, or visiting with us, uh, you should know that it is our, uh, our tradition each December to take a few weeks to focus directly in on incarnational texts, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. And we will have a few of those, but not yet. Lord willing, we'll have uh, both this week and next week still in numbers, and then we will come uh, closer to Christmas uh, to look at some of those incarnational texts. Today, Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 through 18. Before we read this passage together, please join me in a word of prayer as we seek God's blessing. Gracious God and Father, all of your word is truth and light. We pray that as we come to it today, you would shine the light uh, of your countenance upon your people, that you would, uh, you would use the truth of your word to divide between joint and marrow, spirit and soul, that you would expose us before you so that we may find your gift of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, O Lord, to read and understand and believe in him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In our God's word as we find it, Numbers chapter 25. <clears throat> While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly." Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace. And it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. The name of the slain man of Israel who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zur who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with their wiles. 
with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor, and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister, who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. You may notice, uh, if you were here with us last week, that as we move from Numbers chapter 24 into Numbers chapter 25, we are taking a decisively downward step. That is true both geographically and also spiritually. Uh, Numbers chapters 23 and 24 were a literal mountaintop experience. Balaam the pagan became Balaam the prophet, somewhat against his own will, it seems. And from there, atop the mountain, he proclaimed God's blessing on the people below. Numbers 25, on the other hand, presents the situation closer to sea level. And the two pictures could not be more different. Gordon Wenham says that the Bible often does that. It juxtaposes the brightest of revelations with the darkest of sins. It lays them right next to one another so that we can see the contrast. Exodus chapter 32, while the Lord gave covenant laws to Moses on Sinai, the people were down below, bowing down to an image that they had created. So it is here. While the message of salvation rings from the mountains, the stain of sin spreads through the camp. In some ways, those pictures could not be more opposite, and yet they're placed next to one another for a reason. They're given to us so that we would see the seriousness of our sin. They're given to us so that we would uh, point out the marvel of God's grace. As we look at this text today, I want to make two observations, followed by one point of application. Two observations, one application. The first observation from this text is that unrestrained sin is predictably destructive. Unrestrained sin is predictably destructive. You know, the opening verses for our chapter read like one of those mass-produced paperbacks made for young readers. You've read them if you have kids or if you remember being a kid or if you are a kid. They're the ones that are put together not by a single writer but by a whole staff of of writers. And they're churned out one after another, seven books in the same series in a calendar year. Uh, And they're bright sometimes and flashy, but once you read one of them, you feel like you've read them all. The setting changes, maybe the characters are different, but the plot, well, it just seems a bit boring and repetitive. If you know the plot line of the history of Israel and the land of Canaan, you would be forgiven for thinking that you had read this story already before, in numbers perhaps. First, the men of Israel are attracted to the women, the daughters of the nations around them. Then that attraction leads to immorality. That immorality leads to pluralism, and that pluralism leads to outright apostasy. Does that sound familiar to you? Well, here's how it shows up in our text. It says that the men began to whore after the daughters of Moab. Then they went to their sacrifices. Then they ate at their feasts. Then they bowed down to their idols. And finally, the summary in verse 3, so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. Yoking is an interesting terminology here. It talks about a coupling, like an illegitimate affair, if you remember our readings through Hosea, breaking faith with the God Yahweh, 
and coupling together with the god Baal. And that's when you realize, verse 3, this coupling together, that's when you realize that what you are experiencing, what you're witnessing here in Numbers 25, is not something innocent and innocuous like a child's storybook. Now, this is far more like watching some future junkie take his first hit. This is like watching that young promising high school student experience her first high and you know before she ever gets finished with it that she's only going to chase that experience the rest of her life until it ruins her. That is because Numbers chapter 25 verse 3 exposes us for the very first time in the Old Testament to the God whom the Canaanites worshipped by the name of Baal. In the ancient Near East, Baal was the chief among the pagan pantheon. He was the god of warfare. He was the god of thunder and rain. He was the god of fertility. He was the god they thought would give you all that you wanted. Power and prosperity and pleasure. It came by worshiping Baal. And if you know the history of God's people, you know that the sin of idolatry, specifically the sin of Baal worship, was the spiritual addiction that captured Israel from the moment they entered Canaan to the time that they were dragged away into exile some 800 years later. But it all begins here. The whole painful, predictable saga starts here with their first flirtation with the gods of the nations around them. The problem is multiplied by the fact that not only can we foresee how the story is going to go, but it seems that everybody around Israel also knew how this was going to go as well. It seems that only Israel herself was ignorant about the direction that sin was about to take her. The Lord, of course, knew the direction that sin always moves. That's why earlier in Exodus chapter 23, he warned his people not to make alliances, not to strike up covenants with the nations around them in the land of Canaan. He told them that if they did, then they would be led into sin against the Lord and that their gods would become a perpetual snare to the nation of Israel. The Lord knew what sin would do to his people, and in fact, the enemies of Israel knew how sin works as well. That's why in verse 18, it says that Midian harassed Israel with their wiles, with which they beguiled them in the matter of Peor, in the matter of Cosby. You see, it was not a matter of innocent attraction. This was an intentional seduction. Later in Numbers, chapter 31, we will find out that this was a plan cooked up by pagan Balaam. He was a very persistent man, you understand. And when he found that he could not line his pockets by cursing Israel himself, he stopped on his way back to Mesopotamia and he said, you know what, I bet you can get Israel to curse themselves for you. And so they followed his advice. The Midianites tempted Israel with one seemingly small sin in the hopes that that sin would lead to another, in the hopes that sin would do its normal, predictable, destructive work. And it did. It did exactly what they wanted. It seems that everyone other than Israel understands that sin is like an unattended puppy in your living room. Right? It always goes places that you don't want it to go. It manages to chew on things that you thought would be safe. 
You can't keep it contained. Notice the two directions that sin moves in this incident, the Baal of Peor. First, sinful practice moved to become sinful belief. From practice to belief. Now, in our overly sexualized world, the part of this story that grabs our attention is the physical adultery. It all starts with the lust of the flesh. It says, Israel began to whore with the daughters of Moab. That's how it began, but that's not where it ended. And in fact, the real danger behind that physical adultery was the spiritual adultery they were being led into. You've heard that old cliche, the advice that says that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. It is just as true to say that the way to a sinner's theology is through the desires of the flesh. The reality is that we each have the incredible ability as sinful human beings to tolerate sins that we know we shouldn't tolerate because, quite frankly, we enjoy tolerating them. We find them pleasurable. We find them enjoyable. If sin wasn't enjoyable, my job would be very easy, and so would yours. This goes for all sorts of sins of the flesh. From lust and gluttony to outbursts of anger, run-of-the-mill gossip, we find it easy to tolerate enjoyable sins. And once we tolerate them, we begin to rationalize them. And once we rationalize them, we begin to justify them. Before long, we protect ourselves from the sin of our, the disgust of our own shame, excuse me, by telling ourselves a story. The story goes something like this. It says, you know, the Lord probably wouldn't care about a little thing like this. Not when there's so much else in the world to be concerned about. After all, there's no victim here. It's just something that I'm doing. Nobody even knows. It doesn't affect anybody else. It's just me. It's just a little thing. It's not as bad as what they're doing over there. God probably cares about that sin, not, not mine. Before you know it, your theology is being led around by the nose, and at the other, other end of the leash, well, it's the sins of the flesh. That's the first direction. Sin moves in this passage. It goes from being uh, sinful behavior into sinful belief. Secondly, sin unrestrained becomes sin celebrated. Take a look at verse 6. Verse 6, And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. This is brazen, bold-faced sin. While the leadership of Israel is mourning over God's judgment, here comes Zimri, who, by the way, is a chief of the household of the Simeonites. Here comes a man who is under condemnation from the Lord, and here he comes parading his sin rather than repenting of it. That's where sin always leads. If you give it enough room, if you get so used to rationalizing and justifying, soon you move from saying, God doesn't care about this, to saying, you know, God probably approves of this. 
Again, in our, our hyper-sexualized age, you can probably draw all sorts of legitimate parallels between the sins that our society has learned to tolerate and the sins we're now expected to celebrate. But the deeper issue behind Zimri's debauchery is the hardened unbelief that it reveals in his heart. It is the stone-faced atheism that says, there is no God who cares what I get up to in my spare time. By the way, if there is, he's not going to do anything to stop me. And that brings us to the uniquely destructive nature of sin in our lives. It's predictable, of course, but it's also predictably destructive. Sin is destructive, you know. Sin is progressive disintegration. Romans tells us that the wages of our sin is death, and the shadow of that death falls over every area of our lives that it touches, which is to say it shows up everywhere. And so our sin destroys our relationships with one another. It destroys our witness before the world. It destroys our self-control. It ensnares us. It, It ruins our ability to love and to choose what God says is good. Sin makes more sin seem alluring. It makes the pursuit of righteousness seem boring. It twists our desires in on themselves. It produces pride and foolishness and all manner of evil in our thoughts and our words and our actions and our wants. Most importantly, sin destroys the relationship between the creator and his creation. Sin breaks the bond of fellowship between God and mankind because sin cannot come into God's presence without being consumed. And if you wonder how things can manage to get that bad, the answer is, little by little, very predictably. Here's our first observation from the text. Sin never stays where you put it. If you think you can contain it, you're fooling yourself. It always moves from bad to worse. It always does its predictably destructive work in the lives of those who love it. Sin is predictably destructive. Second observation from the text is that God is violently jealous for the purity of his people. God is violently jealous for the purity of his people. I realize that violence is not a concept that people today like to associate with the God of Christianity. Especially not if you have begun to read the New Testament in isolation from the Old Testament. Especially not if you have convinced yourself or believed the lie that says God's primary purpose, his prime objective, is to come into the world and tell us all how, uh, how loved and accepted and perfect we are just as ourselves. If that's the kind of God that you're looking for, you're going to be scandalized when you see God's approval In fact, his command of violence to deal with sin as it shows up in his people. It shows up in three places. God commands violence to deal with sin. First, the Lord commands violence against Israel itself. Verse 4. We read that the Lord's anger is kindled, and then verse 4, he said to Moses, take all the chiefs 
of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. Essentially, the Lord is making a public spectacle of those sins that Israel thought were very private. You know, the things that they did, they were, they were things that happened behind closed doors between consenting adults. They were sins that happened at sacrificial feasts that were by invitation only. This was a closed affair, and God is saying, bring it out into the light so you can see how heinous it is. Hang them in the sun before the Lord. One translation says, hang them in broad daylight. That's the idea. The Lord commands violence to deal with the sin of his people. In verse 9, it puts an exclamation point on it, tells us that he commanded a plague that killed 24,000 Israelites. So the Lord commands violence against his own people. Secondly, the Lord commands violence against the Midianites. We've already seen this, verse 18. God sends Israel to conduct a holy war against the enemies who enticed them. It says they are to harass Midian and strike them down. So violence against Israel, violence against Midian, and perhaps most surprisingly, the Lord praises Phinehas for his violence against two other sinners. It's a strange scene. Here comes Zimri and Cosby, and they're flaunting their immorality through the camp. They are sashaying right past the tent of meeting, right past all of the judges and all of the elders of Israel, and everyone seems paralyzed. No one lifts a finger. No one says a word. They're all just there weeping with regret. And for a moment, it seems like nobody's going to do anything about this blatant sin. Until Phinehas stands up. Verse 7, we find that he left the assembly with a spear in his hand. And he followed this couple into the inner chamber of Zimri's tent, and he pierced them both through with a single thrust. I'll let you parents spell out the details later, but two people have to be awfully close to one another to be speared with the same spear. This is a brutally violent scene. This is one of those R-rated moments in the Old Testament that sort of starts to turn your stomach if you think too long about how it actually happened. And then wonder of wonders, verse 8 concludes by saying, thus, as in, in this way, thus, the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. And somebody says, are you kidding me? That's what stopped the plague? That's what appeased the wrath of God. Someone took a spear and he speared two consenting adults in the privacy of their own bedroom and God was somehow happy with that. And the answer is, you bet he was. The Lord was happy enough to commend Phinehas for his violence. Verse 11. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume them in my jealousy. What does it mean? It means that Phinehas is a man after God's own heart. 
It means that he was troubled by the sins of Israel the same way that God was troubled by the sins of Israel. It means that Phinehas desired complete devotion to the Lord the same way the Lord desires complete devotion to himself. It means that Phinehas was willing to take drastic measures to deal with sin the same way the Lord is willing to take drastic measures to deal with sin. That's why godly Phinehas did not sit there wringing his hands and wiping away his tears like the rest of the elders of Israel. He did not organize his thoughts into some well-articulated plea for incremental change among the leadership. Phinehas took God's word in his heart and he took a spear in his hand and he got to work dealing with the sins that he could see right there in front of his eyes. Now before somebody takes this in the wrong direction, you need to understand that what Phinehas did was part of his job description. This is not an act of vigilante justice. Ian Duguid points out that there is no warrant in this passage for Christians today to do terrible things like bomb abortion clinics or shoot people that we believe to be evil. Since the death of his grandfather Aaron, who was then the high priest, and the elevation of Eliezer into his position, it means that Phinehas took on the priestly duties that had belonged to his father Eliezer. Specifically, he is the head of the Levites, that group of militant men in Israel who were charged with keeping order in the camp and protecting the sanctity of the tabernacle. If we were to use New Testament language from Romans 13, Phinehas did not bear the sword of the Lord in vain. He was an avenger to bring God's wrath on the wrongdoer. This was his job. He was part of a legitimate governing authority, and he executed Zimri in response to God's explicit command to kill all the chiefs of the people. So this does not mean that you should take matters of God's judgment into your own hands, but it does mean that God takes sin far more seriously than many sinners would like to believe he takes sin seriously. It's because, of course, the Lord knows our sin better than we do. The Lord knows where our sin comes from. He knows what it always leads to. He knows how uniquely destructive it is to us and to everyone around us, and that's why the Lord is willing to get violent with the sin that terrorizes his people. The Lord does not tolerate the sins that we so easily tolerate. The Lord does not wink and rationalize the sins that we wink at and rationalize away. He does not celebrate the debauchery of our world that the world so much loves to celebrate. The Lord does the only legitimate thing you can do with sin, which is to kill it. And Phinehas is a very small example of this truth. Phinehas, we're told, was jealous with the Lord's jealousy. Verse 13, we find that with his violence, he made atonement between God and his people. That word atonement, it means reconciliation. It means a broken relationship restored. It means coming together again. And so just like his grandfather Aaron had done when he stood up and 
Numbers chapter 16. Just like Aaron stood the gap between the living and the dead after the, uh, the rebellion at Korah, so now Phinehas has driven his spear between the sin of Israel and their sinless God. And that single death, the Lord counted enough for that occasion. Enough to put an end to the plague of judgment sweeping through his people. Enough to heal the covenantal rift between the Lord and his people. Enough, at least, for now. Because it was not enough to extinguish the sin that still eats away at every human heart from the inside out. So you notice, the Lord praises Phinehas for his jealous violence, and the Lord also rewards him. It says, verse 13, uh, that the Lord gave to him a covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood. In other words, so long as the people of Israel persist, the Lord knows that there will be further relapses. The Lord knows that they will continue to need an intercessor. The sinners that God is leading into Canaan will continue to engage in predictably destructive sin. They will continue to be tempted by idolatry. They will continue to be snared by immorality. They will continue to make excuses and believe lies about whether or not God really cares about all those little iniquities they have floating around in their lives. And the Lord is saying, when this people forget how serious sin is, I'm going to give them a reminder. I'm going to give them someone to intercede. I'm going to give them a priest to stand the gap between their sin and my holiness. I will give them someone to spill the blood of the sacrificial victim. Someone to show them the violence that it takes to deal with sin once and for all. And that's actually what the New Testament tells us was accomplished by all of these old covenant sacrifices over and over and over and over again. What were they? They were a reminder. That's it. That's the best they could do. The Lord gave to Phinehas a covenant of perpetual priesthood. And Hebrews chapter 10 says that in that ministry there was a perpetual reminder of the power of sin year after year. an external memento pointing out the fact that the stain of sin is already inside of us. A reminder that no matter how many bulls and goats are slaughtered for the people, those animal offerings can never cleanse human sinners from their destructive sin. Which is why the Lord promised one more final act of violence on behalf of his people. I know the common conception as well as you do, right? The common idea that says the reason Jesus came is to show the world that God loves them. The reason Jesus came, his prime directive was just to tell us that we are accepted, that we are approved by God in heaven. But that's only half the story, actually. Jesus also came to reveal to us how seriously God takes sin. 
He came because the only way we can be approved, the only way we can be accepted, the only way our relationship with God can be permanently healed is through an act of holy violence poured out on Jesus to put our sin to death once and for all. So Isaiah tells us that he was pierced for our transgressions that he was crushed for our iniquities, that upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. He reminds us that we all like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah tells us that when we broke faith with the Lord, the Lord poured forth violence on his son. Why? Because that's what it takes. Sin is destructive. It's always destructive. And the only way to save a sinful people from sin's destruction is to put that sin to death through a sinless substitute. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 connects the dots between Isaiah and Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Two observations from our text. The first is that sin is predictably destructive. The second is that God is violently jealous for the purity of his people. And it brings us to our point of application, really where the whole text is driving us. The application is that the Lord wants us to take sin just as seriously as he does. That's the key teaching here. Phinehas was jealous with the Lord's jealousy. He was serious with God's seriousness. He did not wink at sin or rationalize it. He heard God's judgment and he believed God's word. And that's where taking sin seriously begins for each of us as well. Namely, it begins with believing the judgment that God has passed on our sin. I realize that there may be some of you here that have yet to do that. You've You've been around Christians talking about sin for quite some time, and you hear it, and it all sounds a little woo-woo. Right? All these people talking about uh, Im imaginary things and invisible things and ancient boogeymen that nobody cares about anymore. And you think, that's, that's not me. That doesn't apply to me. Or maybe you're being raised in the church. You're growing up, and you're hearing your parents. You're hearing other adults talk about sin and its consequences, and you think, man, that, that might have something to do with me someday, but I, I'm so young. <laughs> what could sin have to do with me? I, I'm not Zimri, Cosby. I, I'm not one of these, these sinners, right? But the first part of faith is believing that what God says about you is true. I know that we typically take dealing with sin and we put it in that theological bucket called repentance and that's where it lives. But did you know that it takes faith to repent of your sins? 
Did you know that the first step is to believe that what God says about your sin is actually true? It takes faith to repent of sin. Faith to look at yourself. Faith to believe that you're a sinner. Faith to believe that your sin is as dangerous as the Bible says it is. It takes faith to acknowledge that your sin has broken the relationship between you and the God who made you. It's left you liable to his judgments forever. If you are here and you still have not taken that step, the first application is to believe what God says about your sin. The second step is to believe that Jesus is the answer to your destruction. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Paul says, the saying is trustworthy. It's deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's true. But unless you actually believe in what he has done, unless you believe in his sinless death and his bodily resurrection, all that he has suffered does you no good. Not one bit. Some of you may be at that point in your spiritual journey. On the fence. You've heard the good news a time or two, and every time you hear it, you say to yourself, not me. Not yet. Not today. But I say to you, if not today, when? When will the time be right if today is not the day? When will you decide that you are done with waiting to believe in Jesus? In the camp, outside the tent of meeting, men of the elders and the judges, they sat and they wept, and they looked like they were taking sin very seriously. Oh, the Lord's judgment has come. Whatsoever shall we do? And they pondered, and they wept, and they waited to see what was coming next. And Phinehas got up and he followed the Lord. And if you really want to take your sins seriously, the answer is not found in waiting and weeping and weeping and waiting. The answer is to hear and repent, to repent and believe, to believe and to find life. If you are still sitting and pondering and wondering what comes next, the word of God is telling you today, enough is enough. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Well, the Lord wants us to take sin just as seriously as he does. For all of us, that begins with believing what he says about sin and trusting in his Savior. I've been here a long time, and I, I know most of you pretty well, and I know that most of you have already done that. And so for those who have done that already, taking sin seriously in your life looks like doing violence with the rest of the sin that still clings to you in this earthly body. Romans chapter 8 tells us that if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Romans is telling us, get violent with the sin that's still there. How do we do that? Three very quick tactics from our text. The first, we take our sin seriously by exposing it. 
The Lord dragged the secret sins of Israel out into the light of day. But so long as your secret sins remain secret, they will remain easy to ignore, easy to hide, and easy to self-justify. Let me encourage you, dear believer, to take a page from Numbers 25 and ask yourself, who knows about this sin that I say I've been struggling with so long? Who is there in the church who can lift you up in prayer as a brother in Christ? Who is there in the church who can rebuke you as a mother in the faith? Who actually knows about the things that you wish the rest of the world didn't see about you? Who actually knows about those things that you wish you didn't have to see about yourself? We take sin seriously first by exposing it as believers. Secondly, dear Christian, you... You take sin seriously by cutting it off at its roots. You know, the Lord protected his people in Canaan by telling them, you shall not make alliances with the people of the land. Isn't it striking how often we say we want the holiness that comes from walking with the Lord, and yet we are so hesitant to give up our tiny little alliances. These miniature little conveniences that we think makes life worth living, we refuse to put these things into practice. We say that we want a clean heart and we want pure thoughts, and yet we cannot imagine life without that iPhone in your pocket that can show you all manner of things in an instant. Can't imagine living without it. We say that we want our kids to grow up with Christian convictions instead of full of all the lies the world is constantly shoving down their throats. And then we come home and we're too busy and bothered to actually turn off the television and open our Bibles and have a spiritual conversation with our kids while we still have the chance. Jesus said it best. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. If you want to take sin seriously as a Christian, cut it off at its roots. Finally, this is, this is the final finally of the sermon. It's the last finally. We put to death the deeds of the body. We take sin seriously by taking them to our great high priest. This isn't something that only happens at the beginning of your Christian life. It keeps on going all your life through. When the Lord gave Phinehas a covenant of perpetual priesthood, he wasn't just blessing Phinehas. He was blessing the people. He was saying, I'm going to make sure that there is always someone to stand the gap between your sin and my holiness. There will always be someone for you to intercede. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have something far better a perpetual great high priest who always lives to make intercession for the saints. And if you want to take your sins seriously as a Christian, it's about much more than accountability and elimination. It's also about crying out to your great high priest, asking him to plead your case with the Father. Because when we do, he gives us his promise. Proverbs 28, verse 13. Whoever confesses and forsakes his sin will find mercy. How do you know the Lord takes sin so seriously? 
because he didn't hold back his son. Because he was willing to take drastic measures. He was willing to, to go to violence, to crush him for our sakes. If you will take your sin seriously, brothers and sisters, it means going to the one who was crushed for you. It means crying out for mercy. And he says, when you do, you will find it. Let's pray together. O oh Lord and gracious God, we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would give faith to your people. We pray for the gift of repentance, not just once at the beginning of our Christian lives, but a whole life of repentance, that we would walk with you in faithfulness and uprightness. Oh Lord, help us not to be content with, with limping faithfulness, but by your Holy Spirit, stir up your people so that we would walk with you. Lord, thank you that we so often have to come to you. Thank you that our sins remind us that we need you, that we are not capable in ourselves. We pray that we would each learn that and know that. And you would keep us walking with you until the day when all your promises are fulfilled. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.